Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. It was an eventful week in Harrisburg. A group of legislators have decided to call it quits. And a state Senate committee that could oust Pennsylvania Attorney General Kathleen Keynes holds a hearing. Of course, one event that didn't occur is a green agreement on a final state budget. WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Mary Wilson is with us with Capitol Week in Review. Mary, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Great to be with you. Let's talk about uh, those group of legislators. Uh, I think when people heard the story this week that there were, what, 10, a dozen uh, legislators were leaving, that uh, many people assumed that was larger than normal. But every two years we go through, you know, House members run, running for re-election, that kind of thing. So it's not really uh, a larger group than usual, but there is something different this time. What is it? Right. What, what I've observed is different, and I've heard this from a lot of people who pay attention to the Capitol, it's the kind, it's the profile of the legislator that's calling it quits. So we're seeing this year a lot of people who have been in the legislature more than 10 years, 20 years. Some people have been there since the 80s, and they're saying, I'm leaving, I'm done. And and that's what's unusual. It's, it's about seeing so much experience walk out the door. And the word moderate has been used mm-hmm. throughout the week, too, with a number of uh, these legislators that, uh, I don't know if we'd say most, but some of them have been described as moderates, and that they're I don't know whether fed up is the word, but uh, that they're finding it increasingly difficult to get along. Talk about that, if you would. Well, I think that all, all, most, if not all, state lawmakers are frustrated and fed up. So that's not what distinguishes this group of retiring lawmakers. But it's certainly true that the budget impasse... um, has not helped people, um, has not contributed to people's optimism about about the state government. Um, it's not contributed to people's optimism uh, and, and warm fuzzies toward the legislature. Um, a lot of these people are, as you say, moderate. And I think it's because they've been in leadership positions in times when the legislature has not been controlled by one party. So they've had to be able to reach across the aisle. Um, a lot of these people... Bill Adolph, uh, a House Appropriations uh, Republican, House Appropriations Chair. Dwight Evans, former House Appropriations Chair for Democrats. Um, Nick Kodak, seen as the House's um, leader of Blue Dog Democrats, the uh, Democratic moderates. Um, Representative Chris Ross is leaving. He was tasked with cobbling together a compromise on liquor privatization. Senator Pat Vance, Representative Maury Gingrich. These are Republicans who are seen as hardworking and expert legislators, but they're relatively moderate. You can talk to them. They'll work with you know, with both parties to get something done that they believe in. Um, so so that's the profile of the person that I've seen leaving. And I'm not the only one who's pointed this out. I mean, I heard this from a lot of people that I talked to um, um, in, in reporting about it. Now, when we use the term fed up, fed up with what? With, um, with ideological rigidity in the legislature, um, you know, it's probably not unusual to hear words like rhino tossed around, Republican in name only. Um, But I've heard that a lot in the past couple years. Um, And there's been this, uh, you know, Republicans control both chambers now. And there's this um, interest in like a purity of vision um, and and, uh, a willingness not to bend to um, uh, Democrats or anyone who wants to increase taxes, to increase government spending. Um, And that's something that grew out of, you know, a lot of things that grew out of the Tea Party wave of 2010. Um, It's got roots in the pay raise vote of 2005. Um, But but 
but I think right now what we see, um, and, and a, a lot of people tell you this, um, even the people who encourage it, is that you know they want people to um, to to be a little bit less willing to bend. And the people who have seen bending serve them well in their careers and serve their constituents are saying, look, flexibility is a virtue. Compromise. Right. One of the things you hear most often is, compromise is not a bad word. Right. That's a that's a direct quote of someone I talked to for this story, Senator Pat Vance. Yep, exactly. I spoke to one legislator just a, a few weeks ago who said that uh, they are even hesitant to talk in their own caucus meetings because they're afraid that it will be used against them later. Yeah, I've heard that too. Um, the days of caucuses being a safe space or a, you know, a tree of trust, I think those days are are over or they're over for right now. Um, uh, caucuses uh, can be really contentious and some people feel like they have to really watch what they say. Um, I, I've heard that especially Republicans are really watching their right flank for primary challengers. Um, but to play devil's advocate, those rooms, those you know, those closed door caucus sessions, those were safe spaces when the pay raise was happening and everybody was in on the fix, um, or you know, the fix was in and everybody was in on it. Uh, this this kind of um, uh, mistrust, maybe, and suspicion, and you know, maybe even paranoia. I think there's an argument to be made that that's a byproduct of people being suspicious of the legislature um, and people uh, running to change the way things are done in the legislature, to break up any, you know, good old boys club that they may see, um, any cabal of leadership that they may see running things in a way that they don't like. So I think that the, you know, anybody talking about Cox is not being a safe place place to, you know, share ideas that, you know, that may be a bad thing, but it's also an outcome of people being suspicious of the inner workings of the legislature and trying to change the way things are done. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Mary, and I'm, I'm not telling anything that you don't know, but this is one of the reasons that the public gets so cynical. I mean, the, the, pub, the public often looks at this and says, oh, great, you have voters who do support uh, the, the hardcore, don't bend, and, uh, you know, w this is why we sent you to Harrisburg. We don't, uh, we don't support tax increases, or we do support this on the other side. Uh, but at the same time, when the public hears that uh, legislators can't work together, that they are not willing to compromise, it, it provides that, you know, it, it promotes that cynicism out there that government doesn't work. Right. You know, I hear that. I hear that. I, I do think that it's worth, you know, kind of remembering back to a time when, you know, right after the pay raise, when people were so when the concern then was not about compromise, but that the deals were happening behind closed doors late at night yeah, be, that, you know, that people were all too willing to grease the wheels and get theirs um, in order to make a deal. And in, in that environment, compromise was not good. Well, I mean, you know, was it good or was it harmful to somebody? You know, when whams were the way that deals uh, were up a way that Walking deals got money made. For legislators, yeah. yeah, yeah, money for you know economic development back home or a big infrastructure project. When WAMs were used, when um, when those kinds of favors are exchanged, um, I think that's when compromise um, is is seen with suspicion. Mm -hmm. uh, so is this it? I mean, what do we have, like a dozen legislators, or could there be more? Yeah, that's what I've counted. There are more than that that I'm not getting to. Okay. And some of those names, you know, I, there's a name that I don't include in that tally because he's, you know, you know, House members that are running for Senate. Um, and some of those people are leaving, 
to go on to other political offices. They're running for Congress. Uh, right. Dwight Evans, Dwight Evans uh, uh, Congress, Petrie yeah. in the House, um, and I'm, I'm forgetting a, a couple names, I'm sure, but uh, San Isidro. Um, but, but but yeah, I've counted a little bit over a dozen people. There are names I'm missing, and I do, you know, to anticipate your question next, I do anticipate uh, more people announcing. Uh, Unless I'm totally e- wrong, yeah. and they've just completely backed off the fence. Another big event this week, a state Senate committee held a hearing that could determine uh, Attorney General Kathleen Kane's future. Uh, Kane decided not to participate. Why? Right. This was not a surprise. She has said that she doesn't recognize this committee as having any authority over her. There, you know, this is the committee that's saying, you know, are we going to remove State Attorney General Kathleen Kane because she doesn't have a law license? And um, she doesn't have a law license because it was suspended late last year by the state Supreme Court um, uh, until the criminal because of the pending criminal case against her. She's she's being charged with perjury and other crimes in Montgomery County. So so that's the background here. Kane, uh, the the provision, you know, if you're if you're not quite sure what removal is, well a lot of people weren't. It's um a somewhat obscure provision in the state constitution. Um, it's been used that we know of once before and it was a hundred years ago. So it's not, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the clearest legal precedent. And um, so we're kind of in uncharted waters here. And Kane has said, you know, this is not a legit process and I don't recognize um, the Senate's authority to, to go down this path. So she didn't participate. This is the, you know, there was a hearing this week to give Kane a chance to defend herself uh, before the committee that's kind of Taking up this task for the Senate, Kane did not appear, um, and it and it wasn't a surprise. She doesn't recognize the authority of this committee or or the Senate's you know ability to do this, and she doesn't think it's a constitutional uh, uh, thing to do. But her chief of staff, Jonathan Decker, did. That's right. And uh, it was kind of a contentious hearing at times with uh, with Mr. Decker. Uh, a couple times, uh, State Senate uh, Pro Tem uh, Joe Scarnati took him to task for not knowing her schedule, not knowing how often she came to Harrisburg. He responded that uh, she was working out of the Scranton office where it's kind of her home base. But, uh, you know, he, Scarnati and some of the other senators were not, you could tell they were not happy with some of Decker's answers. Right. There was kind of a natural uh, uh, clash between the chief of staff, Jonathan Decker, and the Senate panel, some of the senators on the panel, I should say. Um, You know, Decker's kind of a he kind of is the you know you know if you called central casting and asked for someone with a background in counterintelligence and counterterrorism like this is the guy you'd get you know yeah, he Steely actually Gaze, he's, been a, he's actually been gay on the show before yeah and you know was a great guest but but would you agree i mean kind oh, of yeah. tight lips oh, yeah. steely gaze um uh you know maybe not one to volunteer information um and you know, when the Senate panel is looking for as much information as it can get, you know, that's going to present an obvious clash. And, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that when, you know, you know, some of those senators were kind of loaded for bear coming into that hearing and were ready to, to you know, to, to be contentious, um, to be a little bit combative. Uh, but but yeah, you're right. It, there were some, you know, there there was a little bit of an eruption uh, on the panel from certainly the President Pro Tem Scarnati when, you know, the chief of staff couldn't give, you know, the time and place of, you know, Kane's past 10 days. He couldn't give the schedule. And Scarnati didn't really, you know, find that very credible. And that's been a theme. You know, w- when is Kane coming to work? That's been a theme in this, in these, in these, um, 
in this committee's work for the past few months. Former Governor Ed Rendell testified, and I, I read one account that said four, F-O-R, and had a question mark, for Kane, because one of the things that the former governor said, and he's a former uh, district attorney in Philadelphia as well, is that this is not the way to go about it. He agreed with the attorney general that this method was not the way to remove her from office, go to impeachment. Now, just so people know, impeachment doesn't mean automatically that you're removed from office. It means that there is a possibility. It's like a trial in, in, uh, you know, in the legislature. But talk about the governor's uh, uh, testimony in front of that committee. Right. Well, Rendell was there primarily to talk about his experience as a district attorney in Philadelphia. And he said he made the case that, you know, his time there in that office was analogous to what the state attorney general would do because the um, Philadelphia DA's office um, you know, has so many cases is of such size and consequence and scope. Um, And so that's, you know, where his, that's where he, that's how he identified his expertise. Um, But following that, you, you know, and by the way, he says that most of what he did as DA was totally non-legal. He was, you know, speechifying and doing PR and making hiring decisions. And, um, you know, in rare cases, was he really applying his legal judgment? And that's the big question before this committee and before the full Senate is, does the fact that Kane doesn't have an active law license, does that, you know, bring a halt to what she can effectively do for the state's law firm, basically the Office of Attorney General? Rendell says absolutely not. And then he goes on to say that he um, doesn't think that the Senate is on sound ground here, sound legal footing here with its removal. He says, what if, uh, you know, Kane has also, by the way, applied to the state Supreme Court to reconsider the suspension of her law license. Rendell says, okay, so what about this? What if the new Supreme Court, now with um, a Democratic majority, um, three new judges elected late last year, so what if the new Supreme Court reconsiders, totally reverses its order on Kane's law license? Now her law license is back in play. What if you voted to remove her? What happens then? Is that nullified? I mean, it's going to be a mess. This is what Rendell's saying. So he says, don't go down this road. If you want to get rid of her, use the tried and true (laughs) impeachment process. Um, And there's been no, you know, people have talked about impeachment a little bit, but there's been no traction that I've seen. Um, It's a process that would have to start in the House. And the Senate, you know, the Senate committee, um, uh, the, the leading Republicans of that committee did not look, you know, amenable to that. But, um... But Rendell has encouraged at least one Democratic senator on that panel to say publicly, Art Haywood out of Philadelphia, to say publicly, you know, I'm, I think Rendell's got a point on this. I think we should, you know, seriously consider, you know, reconsider going forward down this path. So he swayed at least one person. So what happens next? Well, uh, the earliest, the full Senate, could, this committee, it's like very process laden. So this committee would have to make a report on its findings, send that report to the full Senate. Then uh, that could happen in about a week and a half. The full Senate could hold a vote on whether or not to remove Kane. And it's not clear that that vote is going to happen. There's no set timeline by which it would have to happen. And, you know, Rendell's testimony could have really thrown a monkey wrench into those considerations. He could have um, really made Democrats uh, very leery of voting for removal. Okay, one final thing, Mary, and that is the state budget. Anything new to report there? Not much, no. Not much. 
So where do we stand with that? I haven't heard about bipartisan negotiations or any kind of nascent deal. Um, when things were really fluid and a lot of stuff was happening every day in late December, it was because there was stuff maybe going to happen on a tax plan, which is kind of like the linchpin of negotiations right now. If we've got taxes, we might have a deal. If we don't have taxes, we probably have no deal. No talk on taxes right now. No talk of running a tax bill or any kind of precursor to a tax vote. Um, so there's not much happening. And this week we heard House Republicans say, well, there is no budget impasse because we have a we partial have a budget. Right. budget, which is a new line um, and not what they were saying immediately after the governor approved a partial budget with his line item veto. And it is not something that is uniformly um, observed by rank and file House Republicans. Um, so, uh, you know, I see it as just a line and just a line to get House members. This is purely my opinion, but I see it as just a line to get House members through petitioning time. So in late January, uh, House members with an eye on the primary election who want to run again, they have to circulate nominating petitions and get signatures. And everybody has been saying for months that that's going to be kind of tricky if we don't have a budget. Uh, You know, would you like to sign my petition? I'm running for re-election. Oh, by the way, we don't have a budget. Sorry about that. That doesn't look too good. But now the House Republicans are, you know, have this new, you know, you know, slogan that there's no impasse. Um, when you know schools have already warned the state that come March they could run out of money again, and um, you know we don't have a full year's funding bill here. So, Mary, as I said, it was an eventful week in Harrisburg. Mary Wilson is WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief. Mary, thanks a lot for the update. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Competitive figure skating only seems to get widespread attention at the Winter Olympics every four years. Now, when I say widespread, maybe national is a better word because there are hotbeds for ice skating around the country, and central Pennsylvania just may be one of them. In fact, two local skaters will be competing in the U.S. Figure Skating Championships that begin today in Minnesota. Kind of a fun segment today on Friday. Joining us is Janice Ranke, who is skating director at Twin Ponds here in the Harrisburg area. Uh, Ranky, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Also joining us, Renee Greenwald, Vice President of the Central Pennsylvania Skating Club. Ms. Greenwald, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and by the way, if what we're going to be doing here today is talking about a lot of uh, stereotypes or fact fiction, things you may not know about figure skating and ice skating. If you have a question, something you've always wondered about, send us an email, smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, here, I mention Olympics every four years. Are you training all your skaters to get ready for the Olympics, Janice? Absolutely not. (laughs) They all want to aspire to to be an Olympic star, but in reality, that's not going to happen. It's a lot of time, commitment, money, um, but it's their goal. They see it on TV. That's what gets a lot of skaters interested at the beginning. So we always see an influx of skaters in our Learn to Skate programs on an Olympic year. But whether it's a three-year-old or a 65-year-old, they all have different goals in mind of what they want to accomplish. And so that's, I think, as a coach, what I try and do is figure out what their goals are, what they can accomplish, and everybody's goal and outcome is is different. So. I, I ask that question because I know it is a, a pet peeve yes. in the figure skating community that everyone out there, in fact, how often, I'll ask the two of you, how often... Do you have people walk up to you or to your skater and say, oh, are you training for the Olympics? 
Yes, a lot of times where it's like, oh, were you in the Olympics? And it's like, well, no. But, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my daughter sometimes, she doesn't even like talking about her figure skating in school because, you know, automatically the friends are like, oh, are you training to be in the Olympics? You know, and she's like, well, I don't ask all my friends that play baseball. Are they trying to be in the major leagues? You know, so there's a lot other goals uh, to aspire to in figure skating besides making it into the Olympics. So what are, and, you know, Janice, you said uh, three-year-olds are 65-year-olds. I was about to ask, what are young people looking to do? But I'll just say people, and we'll talk about those young people people, and those people who are a little bit older. But, Renee, what are they looking to do when they come uh, to uh, Twin Ponds or other rinks? I mean... Many people are looking for recreation. Some people are looking for competition. I mean, for for me personally, as an adult figure skater, I'm looking to have uh, fun and, and get some exercise doing something that I have a lot of passion for. Uh, it's really fun to be around other people who also enjoy figure skating. Um, but as far as, like, the kids coming to skate, a lot of them, you know, they want to compete. They want to participate in all the different disciplines of skating. You can play hockey. You can uh, figure skate and, and compete. You can be in something like ice theater, which is like a, a musical on ice. Um, you can join uh, something called synchronized skating. There's all kinds of opportunities for skating. It, and both of you should mention uh, to our audience that both of you are still competitive uh, skaters. And I, I, I hate to use the word still because it makes it sound older than what you are. But uh, you're not the teenage uh, Michelle Kwans that uh, a lot of people picture or they see at the Olympics. Uh, you, you know, you're adults and yes. you continue, continue to compete. Um, Janice, how did you get involved in skating? I was about six years old, and my mom took my brother and I to an ice rink in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And a Wolverine. A Wolverine. Go blue. <laughs> so, oh, um, man, you're, you're done. Please. <laughs> this is Penn State territory. <laughs> so my, she really wanted my brother to learn how to skate, but he had very weak ankles, and I guess he hated it, and I loved it, and I begged to go back, and that started the whole process. Uh, well, when you say three-year-olds and 65-year-olds, uh, three-year-olds, you know, many people are familiar with uh, babies learning to swim. What about uh, youngsters like that learning to skate? So I have um, a taught class, and there's from as young as two, two and a half that will get on the ice and just learn how to march, and they love it. Or they might have an older sibling that they see play hockey. So I have a lot of little boys that want to aspire to be hockey players, so they they start skating. And Actually, for them, it's a great age because it's a lot lower to the ice to fall than when, it, when ah, you're an adult. Never so, thought of that. Yeah. And a lot of times they have diapers on, so it helps with the, <laughs> the, the padding when they fall. Um, but it's a great age to learn. So whether they're three and the parent just wants them to get some uh, exercise or a 65-year-old that maybe that's on their bucket list. And I have adults that want to start learn how to skate at that age. Um, just to be able to go out and, and do something new. Are the, are the little boys wearing hockey skates or figure skates? Um, it's about half and half. Sometimes they start out in figure skates and then go to the hockey skates. So, But they have all their gear on and padding. And so, you know, sometimes they like to lay on the ice more than they do skate. But uh, <laughs> they do get moving. It's pretty incredible to see their progress. Well, let's talk about the older people then because, uh, as Renee said, you can see where this would, uh, and I say you, meaning the audience, can see where this would be great exercise. I imagine what probably holds some older people, and I say older, meaning after the age of 20, uh, what holds them back 
is that they don't want to admit that they can't skate, and they think they'll be the only adult there learning to skate. Is that true? Uh, I think that's probably a barrier to some people starting, um, but they should know that there are adults in the learn to skate classes um, around the rinks in central Pennsylvania, and they're, you know, you start out very small. I mean, if you can walk, you can learn to skate. You start out by taking very small steps, just like you do as a child learning learning to walk. Um, you know, y- you would be really surprised at how much uh, progress you can make in a very short time. So. There also sometimes are just adult classes. I know that um, in Hershey, there is an adult club where it's all adults that come together and they learn to skate and advance their skills. And so, then go out afterwards oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. you know, have a snack and an adult beverage or two. Right. right. The, yeah. the adults certainly find ways to appreciate each other's company <laughs> you know, on and off the ice. I describe central Pennsylvania as a hotbed for ice skating. Uh, how did we become this hotbed? Well, I think there's, I mean, we have rinks. We have uh, Twin Ponds in Harrisburg. We have Twin Ponds in Mechanicsburg. We have uh, the Palmyra Ice Arena, of course, in Palmyra. We have uh, the Hershey Arena and the Giant Center in Hershey, the York Ice Arena in York. I mean, there's just a variety of of uh facilities and supporting figure skating clubs that run programs in this area. So really, I mean, we're all within about uh, a 10 to 20 minute drive to access any of the learn to skate programs or or other, you know, more involved programs. Mm. You know, I uh, this this weekend, I was thinking about this weekend, I mentioned that uh, the U.S. Nationals are this weekend in uh, Minnesota. They actually start today. And we have two youngsters uh, from uh, central Pennsylvania, uh, Reagan Scott in the juvenile girls division and Zachary Yaninick in the juvenile boys. Uh, both will skate in Bloomington, Minnesota this weekend. So we'll be watching to see how they fare. But as I was researching the program, doing some reading on it, I saw that uh, both of them train in Hershey at the Giant Center, and that they felt that that gave them a little bit of advantage, or at least that they wouldn't be intimidated in skating in a large arena with a lot of people watching because they're used to skating in a large arena where there could be more than uh, normal. Why would that uh, give them an advantage, or would that help them from keep, uh, keep them from being intimidated? I think visually having a bigger rink, you learn to um, have a different setting versus a smaller rink and just seating capacity and learning to sell your program to the audience is a a factor. Um, And just from the size and even lighting that people might not even think about, but the lighting, it might be different in a bigger arena. But they do travel quite a bit to other competitions and have bigger venues that they skate out of. So that, that can help them in their competitive uh, situation in this instance. You were telling me that uh, you're going to nationals in synchronized skating, and you told your mother about it. Yes. D- tell our audience about that. So I was a competitive ice skater for many, many years, and it is hard even to get to the national level, which I did not succeed at, but I, I do have a, a gold medal in ice dancing. So my test level was was fairly decent. So I called my mom a couple years ago and I said, hey mom, guess what? I'm going to nationals. And she was like, what? And I said, well, our team qualified to go to nationals. So they watched me on on Ice Network and sent me an email that I read in the locker room to all my lady friends that it still brought a tear to my old man's eye to watch his daughter at 40 plus uh, still compete. So it was kind of fun. It had to be a thrill though. It was. It was 
very exciting. Um, both Renee and I, our daughters, were there to watch a skate and to have our daughters see that at no matter what age you can still be in the sport is really amazing. And I think that's a, an important point for our, our audience to know that you can start skating at seven, but you can continue into your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It's really an incredible sport. You mentioned testing. Uh, a lot of people think about like martial arts, for example, mm -hmm. with testing for a degree of, uh, of belt that you get. Right. It's very similar. Okay. How does it work? Uh, well, in, in ice skating, when you start to take learn to skate lessons, you go through um, a basic skills badge test levels. Um, and once you've surpassed that, then you enter U.S. figure skating's um, national standard uh, that you're measured against. The test structure is uh, the backbone of U.S. figure skating, and uh, the level you enter in competition is determined by your highest test level. Um, each test that you pass goes on your permanent record. It's an achievement you always carry with you. Um, in fact, your test passed and your placement at qualifying competitions are the only things on your U.S. figure skating record. When an athlete passes their senior or gold test, which is the highest level, and there's a lot of work and effort to get there, um, many years of dedication, mastery of their discipline, uh, when they are able to achieve that, the athlete turns the, earns the title of U.S. figure skating gold medalist. And um, uh, that's an accomplishment they can put on a skating resume, a college application, or even a job application. So it's not all about, you know, getting to that highest uh, pinnacle of, of the Olympics. There's there's so much more, like you mentioned, the, the black belt in karate or maybe an Eagle Scout in Boy Scouts. It, it's similar. So Reagan and Zachary going to mm -hmm. nationals this weekend, uh, how do they have to test? They, they have to test in the same way. So they both started out with basic skills, you know, going to the learn to skate class and moving through the ranks. Um, and then they entered, of course, this this national standard uh, testing structure from U.S. figure skating. Um, they start out with a pre-preliminary, it's called, test, um, which is more uh I won't call them simple moves because for someone who hasn't skated at all, they're going to be very difficult. But the tests are, are simpler, um, and then they become more advanced. So they both are skating at the juvenile level. So that means that they have passed um, four or five levels of free skate testing um, in order to be able to be eligible to compete at their level. So, Janice, when Renee talked about, uh, you know, some of the things that they've learned over the years, and I go back to uh, the real young skaters, and as, as they get older and as they learn more, uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, the terms that we've learned over the years from watching figure skating on TV, uh, you know, the sow cows, the double sow cow, you know, and all those things, uh, the toe loops. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, probably most of the audience don't know, didn't know what Dick Button was talking about, Scott Hamilton, uh, Peggy Fleming, all those people. But, you know, they were amazed that the athleticism and uh, the art that goes goes into it, uh, learning how to do those things. How do these kids learn how to do these things? It's complicated. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of off-ice preparation that goes into it, core strengthening, um, building your leg muscles, your arm muscles. Um, gymnastics can be a part of that. Uh, Dance. I, right. Um, ballet. Um, a lot of different um, things that go into that to train them. Even acting classes can be part of it. How do you start with them? What's, what's, what's like the first thing you teach them after they have shown that they can skate? 
Wow. Or is it, is it like on an individual basis? Do you, I mean, do you look at uh, a skater and say, well, th- this one will be probably easier to learn uh, this move than another? You can definitely tell. Like in our group classes, there's a curriculum that we follow. Um, so it's just, you know, like it would be in school. There's different steps that is universal with you and uh, U.S. figure skating. Um, and then in private lessons, it just depends on their ability to pick up on things and their drive and desire and how often they're skating. That from a one-on-one lesson, we all move in different directions. Okay. What's the easiest? What's the easiest? Move. Things that t- other than smiling throughout the entire presentation. Wow. Maybe that's the most difficult. Stroking. Probably. (laughs) Nice, beautiful stroking. I mean, and which can be a a difficult thing, but that's the most important thing. Stroke. What's stroking? um, Just pushing forward, skating forward. With your arms moving? It can be your arms out, your arms doing different positions, but just bending your knees and getting into the ice and working with your edges and making it look effortless. Working with your edges, what's that mean? Edges, uh, you have a blade at the bottom of your skating boot, and there's a hollow in the blade, and you have an outside edge and an inside edge. So working on your edges is what, and pushing into the ice is what gives you your power and your flow. Mm-hmm. All right, so what's the most difficult move? I mean, uh, this is when you reach the Olympic level, I oh. imagine, when well, you're doing quadruple. Would, exactly. So yeah. all your quadruple jumps would be the the most difficult thing to I mean, it takes a beating on your body, so you're very fortunate to get to that level and and not have injuries that take you out of that competition mode. But doing your doing all those jumps is is pretty amazing. What's the most difficult one you've done? I was working on double lutz before I tore my Achilles tendon, so that kind of ended my jumping career. What's double lutz? Uh, it's when you're skating backwards into a corner and reaching back with your toe pick to vault you into the air and turning two times in the air. Okay. Back in my time, we did figures. So that was a lot of time on the ice doing circles over and over and over again. So now that's been replaced by moves in the field to make it more um, cost effective for a, a parent because it, it it's a lot of money. Uh, it's tough to recover from an Achilles uh, tendon injury. Same for you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yes. They didn't know if I'd be able to skate again or if I might have a limp when I was walking, but knock on wood, fortunately, I've been able to be okay with it. Renee, what about you? Most difficult? Most difficult for me? Yeah. Um, let me see. <laughs> I didn't get very far as a child in free in freestyle skating. Probably... Uh, a single, a single let's, yeah. So I really appreciated and enjoyed more of the spinning, turning edges, you know, really fast skating. I didn't do a lot of jumping. Mm-hmm. You know, there seems to be sometimes a lot of times where you, where you hear uh, a skater described as a, a great athlete or a great artist. Uh, and combination of the two uh, or a great dancer great jumper you know the that combination probably makes for the real champions but um, I would imagine that most skaters are probably better at one thing or two things than they are the other correct yeah I mean a lot of times they are they're they're more artistic and so they have higher what what is called the program component score when you're when you're watching figure skating on TV and others are great powerful 
athletic jumpers, and so they have a really high technical score. So the, the greatest champions are the ones who can combine and be very talented in both of those areas. All right, scoring is, has always been a mystery mm-hmm. to many people. And right? it remains such. <laughs> it, does, it does to coaches and uh, parents and athletes as well. Well, yes. the Russian judge always ticked me off. Right, so, exactly. you know? <laughs> but back when they were Soviet judges, they were even worse. But let's talk a little about judging. What are judges looking for? Well, on the technical element score, they're looking for the jumps and the power and rotations on your spins, positions. On difficulty. The difficulty, yes, on, on that scoring. And on the program component score, they're looking for things such as skating skills, transitions, choreography, presentation, um, all the things on, that used to be called the artistic mark. So it's a combination of those. And you do have, like Renee said, skaters that are more powerhouses and do the jumps and maybe have they're not as artistic. Or you have skaters that might be more artistic but maybe not as good of jumpers. And with the new scoring system, it tries to balance both of those components. New scoring system. Well, there's a scoring system that was put in place years ago called the IJS scoring system. So it's not the 6.0 scoring system that used to be. So now you have a point system. So you really know what elements you need to bring up. It might be your skating skills or your presentation, choreography. So it's they've tried to level out the playing field instead of having it be a little bit more biased. Uh, Renee, you, uh, well, both of you laughed when uh, I said it's a mystery. Why do you uh, say that? Oh, I mean, because, you know, I mean, judges are people just like us. So, you know, they, you can't always, with IJS, which is called the International Judging System, um, each element is assigned a maximum possible score. And then you can get, like, extra credit for, um, you know, doing it really well or have credit taken off or not uh, executing it so well. Um, in the 6.0 system, there's a lot more mystery because there isn't really, it's, it's, it's more subject to the, the judge's opinion instead of being based on some kind of standard. I mean, I, I, I'm not a judge, so I mean, I can't really speak to that. But as a parent uh, or as a skater or as a, uh, a coach, you know, sometimes you look at the overall end ending score and it just doesn't really jive with maybe what you think. Even if you're trying to be impartial, um, sometimes it's a little, I mean, you can look at, so eight, uh, eight skaters skated and uh, one judge put them in first place and the next judge put them in seventh, seventh place. And it's just kind of like, well, were they both watching the same program? Yeah, what are you thinking? But, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it happens. It happens. It's just like, you know, when a referee in a, you know, a soccer game or whatever maybe makes a call that not everybody agrees with. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk uh, on a, a cold, uh, well, not as cold as it has been, but a cold January Friday. We're talking about uh, figure skating, ice skating, with Janice Ranke, who is skating director at Twin Ponds, and Renee Greenwald, who is vice president of the Central Pennsylvania Skating Club. If you have a question, give us a call, or excuse me, don't give us a call. Send us an email. <laughs> it's a Friday. Send us an email, smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, Janice, I want to talk a little bit more about synchronized uh, skating that uh, I, I actually saw a video, and uh, you 
not only coach synchronized uh, skating, but uh, you're involved. Yes. It's not one of those things that even skate fans, figure skating fans, may be as familiar with. Talk about uh, synchronized skating, if you would. Synchronized skating actually started in Ann Arbor, Michigan years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember seeing um, the Hawkettes perform. And it is the fastest growing discipline of figure skating right now. And I think it's because it's a team sport. It not only challenges you from a team aspect, but you still have to work on your individual skills. Um, But synchronized skating is comprised of 8 to 20 skaters, and there's different levels just like with single skating. Um, Right now, it's still in the process of trying to get into be an Olympic sport. Um, But they do have world championships where skaters skate. Uh, we are hosting the Central Pennsylvania Figure Skating Club and Hershey uh, Figure Skating Club are hosting a Reflection Synchronized Invitational um, in February, and it is the second largest competition on the East Coast, and we've just seen an influx of a uh, number of teams coming to the competition, and it's just a really good opportunity to maybe uh, skaters who aren't the bigger jumpers or spinners um, it gives them an opportunity to skate with their friends, to travel and compete and have a great time. What date in February? Uh, it's February 14th and 15th okay, so at the Giant Center. T- tickets? Are there tickets available? Uh, the tickets are available at the door. At the door. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, you, and again, I keep thinking, I, I hate to keep using the Olympics as uh, my where my starting point, put it that way. But it used to be that um, the singles... And the pairs got most of the attention. Ice skating, or excuse me, ice dancing, I should say, in the last um, decade or so has really taken off on the Olympic level as far as competition goes. But from what I understand also on the local level that ice dancing, it looks like a lot of fun. looks like those who participate are having a great time. Talk about ice uh, dancing, if you would, Renee. Oh, I mean, ice dancing has exploded. I mean, particularly with uh, our, our, our Olympic champions, Meryl Davis and Charlie White. Right. I mean, they really inspired a, a new generation of ice dancers. And, you know, so, yes, ice dancing might look a little easier, but I guarantee you it is not. It is very difficult and challenging. And the ice dancers at the higher levels, I mean, they're doing very difficult lifts. Um, but, you know... I. If you enjoy, like, ballroom dancing, you know, you can kind of apply that to the ice. But now you put yourself on this, you know, very thin steel blade, and it becomes very, very different. But, you know, it's beautiful to watch. It's just you feel like you're flying across the ice. And um, I know for a lot of our skaters, they, they just absolutely love it. How important is music? Music's very important as far as creating the the story that you're telling um, so having musical appreciation is a, a really big part of it, as well as costuming and choreography. The story that you're telling, is that what the, <clears throat> the ice dancers are trying to do? I think so. For a lot of um, teams, whether it be pair teams, ice dancing teams, synchronized skating teams, uh, the judges want to be entertained. They want to see a story being portrayed, emotion versus just skating. Uh, if they turned off the music, you should be able to tell what kind of music that they're skating to. The music has changed a great deal in mm-hmm. the in the last twenty years as, as well, and maybe not for the Russians or the Chinese, uh, you know. Who? And, but it used to be that it was 
ballroom dancing music mm-hmm. or uh, maybe even operas or classical music. And there are still skaters that that used those genres as well. But you have many more skaters today who are using contemporary music, more popular music. And it seems as though it's allowed them to open their personalities a little bit more. Is that a accurate observation? Absolutely. And I think it does incentivize the skaters to pursue different dif- disciplines as well. And even in, in uh, freestyle skating, you know, the one you're most used to watching, I think it makes it more interesting for the skater and also for the audience, you know, because they might not want to just listen to classical music for two hours while they're watching, uh, you know, an ice skating competition on NBC Sports or something. What's the most unusual piece of music you've uh, heard in a in a competition? Think um. about that. Something that right away you said, "Huh, I don't know how they're going to do this." I don't know. We've heard. I mean, we've heard a lot of different types of music, especially with the synchronized skating. Um, you know, everybody tries to be very creative and unique. Um, I think I can remember some uh, programs that had this very like industrial. Um, metallic kind of sound, and I thought, wow, that's that's going to be pretty interesting to watch and see what unfolds. When you say metallic, you don't mean I don't metallica. Mean, I don't mean metallica. <laughs> although we have heard a lot of you know heavy metal. Twenty years ago, you never would have never, heard that. Never. I mean, that exactly. appeals to many of today's judges who are you know some in rock that and generation. roll. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the stereotypes and uh, misconceptions about skating. What are some of the stereotypes that are misconceived. Oh, boy. Well, I mean, one of the biggest stereotypes is that they're all trying to train to be an Olympian. Right, We kind of talked about that Um, right up front. I think some of the stereotype, you know, the whole Tanya Harding thing that came up back then. I mean, you know, so people do, not today, I don't think today's kids really, because it's kind of like... Well, Janice, your daughter's here. Have you ever hit anybody in the knee after... No. (laughs) No, well, that's good. That's good. So you have a clean slate. Yeah. You still have time, though. (laughs) So there might be a stereotype that skaters are very, like, cutthroat, you know, But I think that we have observed uh, quite a camaraderie and teamwork and supportive and encouraging environment uh, amongst the competitors. But at the same time, it is competition. I mean, we don't want to go as far as, you know, physically uh, hurting someone or doing. But at the same time, I imagine that there is fierce competition because you're competing for these numbers. Absolutely. And I think... You know, some of the stereotypes might be that they're like divas, and there are some divas in the sport, but I think that's one thing, you know, even with like team sports or um, that that they're not. I mean, a lot of these kids are straight-A students. They, they focus. They have other activities, and I think it, it starts like with the parents and what their goals are to help them achieve and – um, that's just a stereotype that they're not all divas. They they do at our rank. They they get along with each other. They encourage each other, and it is still competition. So there's still pressure. So it's just trying to maintain that balance. Mm. And one of the stereotypes, as far as being, you know, aside from being divas, that uh, you know, hey, look at me, you know, very self-centered, that kind of thing. But that this is a rich person sport. Now it does cost money. It can be costly. <laughs> But that there only are the children of people who have money who compete. Uh, well, neither one of us is a rich person. <laughs> really? No. That's the only reason I had you on today. <laughs> Wait, Sorry to disappoint you. Some, some would say we have spent uh, a considerable amount of our disposable income on this sport, uh, at, at, you know, which 
I know personally I, I've been looked at like I'm completely insane for spending some of the money. <laughs> so I mean when you're first starting when you're first starting out and you go to learn to skate class, I mean, you're not spending that much money. It's not any more expensive than any other kind of team sport. Now as you get into the higher levels, I mean for kids who are trying to get to the Olympics, yes, you're going to spend upwards of fifty to a hundred thousand dollars a year for training. Now, what is that money spent on? Um, ice time, coaching, uh, competition fees, travel, off-ice training. It, I mean, yes, the cost can be very expensive. So the more time that you're in it, um, you know, so example, for example, if you're taking a private lesson, you know, twice a day, well, those costs add up and you have to pay for the ice. Ice is very expensive. So before we scare people out there, mm-hmm. that fifty to 100000 you're talking about. I'm talking Olympic level right. skaters. And, and really, if yeah. you think about it, that's almost any elite athlete Absolutely. level that would be training like that and the cost for would be similar. Sport. But for someone listening today and saying, you know what, uh, I'll bet my daughter or my son would, be, uh, would, would like to do this. They're not looking at a lot of money. If they're just starting out and looking to take a a group lesson, for instance, our group lessons are like they average $12 per time, and that's an hour of ice time, a half an hour lesson. And really, there's not a lot of things you can do in today's world for $12 to work on increasing your skill level. So that includes your skate rental. That's not a lot of money. Do you have children from low-income homes that are skating, though? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Would you like to have more? Absolutely. It's it's a great sport to feel free to have the feeling that you're accomplishing something every time you're on the ice. It helps kids learn how to fall, to get up, and even, you know, competing. You might be the best skater, but maybe you don't get the best score, and it teaches you life skills that maybe you go for a job in the future and you're the most qualified, but you don't get the job for whatever reason, and you have to learn how to get over those obstacles and move on. Do you teach those life lessons? I believe I do, and I believe it comes through every single practice, every single competition. It is just part of this the skating life and skating world. To the kids, I mean, I, I guess what I was asking is, do, do you actually make a point of saying, you know, there's going to come a time when, you know, in your future that uh, you'll be knocked down and you'll have I, to get I back do. up? Do I you? do. At, maybe not at seven, but even with my own daughter and Renee's daughter, um, they both competed and maybe we thought scores should have come out differently or things handled differently. And you do have to take those opportunities to tell them because I think that's part of what skating is about. Mm-hmm. Life isn't fair sometimes. That's absolutely true. Right. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I had to ask this question because there was someone who suggested it to me. Uh, and this is kind of off track we were talking about. But when we were talking about moves, how do skaters keep from getting dizzy when they're spinning? Oh, um, you know, being a skater, it's kind of hard to to verbalize how you keep from getting how you keep from getting dizzy. Do you pick a point when you spin? Do you pick a spot? I do not. I don't. I, I, so ballerinas, they will spot and pick a point as they're doing their rotations. But when you're spinning, you can't possibly do that because you're spinning so fast. It's one of those things that my beginner skaters get very dizzy at the beginning, and then they you learn to just get over it, and it just kind of goes away the I more you the do more it. I think the more you're on the ice, just the easier yeah. it becomes. Well, this has been fun. I wish we had more time. Uh, you have competitions coming up in Hershey and you are correct? 
Uh, well, the Central Pennsylvania Figure Skating Club hosts the Reflection Synchro Invitational February 14th and 15th at the Giant Center. Then the Keystone State Games is in York in March 19th and 20th. Janice Ranke and Renee Greenwald, thank you very much for being with us thank today. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Coming up on Monday, we talk presidential politics and the election.